Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Nathaniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway Church. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome you. We're continuing the next in our uh, preaching series, A House for My Name. And what we're doing is we're taking this big bird's eye view through the Old Testament to give us this big picture understanding of what happened then and why it's relevant to us today. And uh, we're in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah this morning, and you might want to keep a finger in the page. If you've got one of these church Bibles, it's page 472, and we're going to be going from there. And we're picking up the story. The people of God have been taken back into exile in Babylon, with Jerusalem and Judah having been conquered by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And we're told that this is God's will because of the continued sin and disobedience of the people of Jerusalem. They weren't following God's ways, but following their own. And when I say following their own, actually what I mean more often is that they were following the gods around them instead. And in exile in Babylon, the people were instructed to do good. And in our preaching series, we had a look at examples from Daniel and from Esther as a blueprint of how to live for God while in exile in Babylon. And this morning, we're now moving into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're jumping about 50 years ahead in terms of our timeline. So if, you're, if you are, like I am, trying to map it out in your head as to whereabouts we are in the story, we've kind of jumped another to the next chapter as we come into Ezra 1. Now, we've got a lot to cover this morning, so I'm going to get right to it. So we're in Ezra 1, chapter 1, and verse 1. And let's start reading together. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia... I'll stop there. Now, who is Cyrus? Last time, last time we picked this story up, we were uh, hearing about King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and all of a sudden, we open up Ezra, and the first thing we hear is about this chap Cyrus from Persia instead... So that's not kind of what we'd expected to have read. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was this king of the Babylonian Empire who took Judah and Jerusalem and brought the people into exile in Babylon. But Babylon wasn't the only empire in this period. And that's where we're introduced to Cyrus. Because after Babylon takes Jerusalem, Babylon itself gets taken over by the Persian Empire. And so this guy, King Cyrus, is now the guy who's in charge. And if you're here this morning and you're new to faith or you've um, not even sure if you believe yet, I want you to be encouraged by Cyrus. Um, and I'll tell you why. As I've got older, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to be able to head to museums and have a look at old artifacts. And I know what you're thinking. That's where all the cool guys hang out, isn't it? The museums. That's well, we are all there. And uh, while we're there looking at things, you might have happened across this. So if you head, head up on the train to London this afternoon, head to the British Museum, you can go and see this cylinder displayed at the British Museum. And this is the cylinder of Cyrus. And when we say Cyrus, we mean this Cyrus, the Cyrus that we're reading about this morning. And this cylinder was found in Iraq, which is modern-day Persia, in 1879. And the amazing thing about this cylinder is that you can go and see it with your own eyes. And if you had the right level of clearance, you could go and pick it up, and you could touch it and feel it and have it in your hand. And the reason I want you to be encouraged when we talk about Cyrus is because when we open the Bible, when we stand up here week after week and, and tell stories from this Bible, we're not talking about fiction. This isn't uh, a good moral life lessons that have been written down for us to read about. Um, actually, what we're talking about is history. What we're talking about when we open our Bibles happened and is true. And we've got these amazing touch points, things like this, that help us to have confidence in that. Uh, when, we, when we read through the Bible, we've got these proof points that can help us to believe what's written. So if you're new to Christianity or new to faith, I hope that encourages you. And perhaps the next time you're in the British Museum, you can go and seek it out. Back to our text then, Ezra 1 verse 1. Let's read. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Stop there. <laughs> now, 
has anybody got lunch plans? Because actually, there's quite a lot to cover still, so I hope you're um, settled in for a long one today. I will speed up, I promise, but it's good to remind ourselves when we read, to, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken to Jerem- by Jeremiah, well, what was that word of the Lord? Um, as we know, in this period of history, we've got kings and we've got prophets, and the kings of Israel and Judah are appointed to rule over the people, and they're not doing a particularly good job of doing it for the most part, uh, and they're not doing a particularly good job of leading people in observing the laws and following uh, worship of God. And so God uses prophets, and Jeremiah is one of those prophets, to come and speak to people to tell them what God's saying. And when I say tell them, actually, most often, these prophets have to come and warn the people that they're doing it wrong, and they need to turn back and follow God and continue to follow in his ways. And we spent two weeks as a part of this series looking through the book of Jeremiah, which was full of prophecies about Jerusalem's downfall. And as we're reading, we know that that happened because the people got taken away into exile in Babylon. But Jeremiah also prophesied that God uh, wasn't done with his people and he wasn't done with the city and he still had a plan to build his house and build a house for his name. And I want to turn our attention to Jeremiah 33 and it's going to come up on the screen behind as well, starting in verse 6, so that we can read a little bit about what these prophecies are. So in Jeremiah 33 we read, I'll heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I'll bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and we rebuild them as they were before. I'll cleanse them from all the sin they've committed against me and will forgive all the sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me uh, renowned joy and praise and honor before all the nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace that I'll provide for it. So Jeremiah's this book that's warning Jerusalem of their downfall, that they're going to get taken over. And then Jeremiah 30 to 33, you get these beautiful prophecies about what's going to happen next. And that should be really encouraging for the people who are in exile, that God's not done with them yet. It's not a permanent exile because God's promised that the city and they will be restored. So Ezra 1 verse 1, let's read In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Isn't that amazing? God moves Cyrus, this big, mighty, powerful king, to allow the people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. God's promise through Jeremiah is going to come to fruition, and we start to see that here as we open the book of Ezra. And then Ezra tells the story of the, uh, the first group of people going back from exile into Jerusalem and building first an altar and then a temple. And then in Nehemiah, we read about the building of the city as a whole. And that's where we are in this part of the story today. And I want to just point out a couple of things from these first few verses before we go on. The first is which... Uh, the first of which is that I find it so amazing and encouraging that God's using the kings of nations who don't worship him to bring about his will. And we've read about Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar takes the city and brings the people to Babylon, and that, we're told, was God's will. And now Cyrus is moved to let the people return to fulfill God's word again. And we've got to remember, this isn't a story. We've got touch points. We know it's history. And God's working to bring about his plan. So whether it's through Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus, and as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah continue, we get introduced to other kings like Darius and Artaxerxes. 
There's different powers and different kings, and there's Babylon, and then there's Persia. But through the whole thing, God is working for his plans and purposes to be achieved, even through the kings of the nations and empires that don't follow God. They're being used to bring about his will. And I want to I suggest that this is an encouragement to us, because I don't know about you, but how many times have you kind of got home from work, turned on the TV to watch the news, and just felt frustrated or angry or despondent or exasperated or helpless when you, you're listening to the news and you're listening to what's going on around the world and you're just thinking, God, what is going on? You know, I've been keeping up with the news of what's going on in Ukraine, the war crimes that are being committed there, the, the horror that, that you know, we're witnessing on our TV screens. And you can think, what is going on? Closer to home, you might be really moved this week by the way that asylum seekers are being treated in the country, or uh, Partygate might still have you burning uh, as well. But actually, what, what I want to say is, it's these things that sh- they shouldn't polarize us. They shouldn't, we shouldn't allow them to draw our focus away from God. What we should do is pray, because we've got a God in our corner who's got the power to change the minds of kings to bring about his plans. And that means as Christians, when we see these things, it's not our role to get angry, it's our role to pray. We should be praying for these leaders, praying for situations around the world. You turn on the TV and see what's going on in Ukraine, pray for Putin, pray for Zelensky, pray for good decision-making, pray for God's will to be done. Closer to home, if you see things that you think, God, it's not how it's supposed to be, pray for Boris Johnson. God's the God of change, and we should be praying that he brings about his plans and his purposes. And as we read and as we know, he can do it even if the kings aren't following him. We've got God on our side, and the situation is not helpless. And so God's promises get fulfilled here as Cyrus lets the people return. And it's amazing to read, as we go through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the God who holds his promises and the God who keeps his promises. And I want to pause and talk a little bit about the timing of those promises as well. Because from the period of exile, where uh, the, the people get taken away from Jerusalem, to the period of return that we're reading about here, there's been about, give or take, 50 years that have passed. And there will have been people over the course of those 50 years that will have died, and actually never would have seen that promise come to fruition. And it can be really easy to read the Bible and read the context and and see, oh, well, you know, the people must have been really encouraged because they knew that God had a plan. But actually, if you were living through those 50 years, I bet it wouldn't have felt quite like that. Imagine how you'd have been feeling if 50 years later you were holding on to this promise and thinking, is it ever going to come true? You get brought out of Jerusalem, but with this hope that you'll be back, and then a couple of years go by, and you think, oh, yeah, probably it's still going to happen, and then 10 years, and then 20, and decades pass, and you think... It must have been so hard to have kept on to those promises, kept hold of them. And we've been going very quickly through this Old Testament series. And one thing that I think might have been missed as we've gone through it is just how long this whole process has taken as we've been going through it. Thousands of years of history summed up as we go and read this big picture story. And it's been so helpful to get the big picture. But I don't want us to miss the fact that actually if you were in the midst of that story, there's a lot that you would have missed because you just wouldn't have been alive to see the whole thing. We, I'm so grateful that we've got um, the, the, the ability of hindsight to be able to go back and read and to be encouraged by these things. But if you were living through it, there are generations living through this period of history that wouldn't have had this full understanding. You might not have seen these promises come to be realized. And actually, we can, in through the Psalms, get a little bit of a glimpse of how they felt. You can read Psalms like Psalm 13. David, the Psalm of David there, Psalm 13, starts with him saying, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How many times through the course of Old Testament history must the people have been shouting, how long, Lord? 
in, a moment, in, in the moment, it must have been so easy to doubt God's promises. And like I said, I'm so thankful that we've got the benefit of hindsight to be able to read the big picture. But I do think as well, it can be a little bit like that for us as well. We can come on a Sunday and we can hear from God and we might feel that God really speaks to us personally. Or you might even feel, uh, you might, somebody might even give you a prophetic word that comes from God. And actually, I think when sometimes we hear from God, we in our own uh, wisdom can superimpose the word now at the end of it. And when it doesn't happen, when it doesn't happen to our timing, because we want it to happen now, we can get frustrated. And you might feel that God has called you to a new town or to a new city or to a new job, a new ministry area, a partner, children, healing, whatever it might be. And it gives you that great hope in the moment because you think, yes, God hasn't forgotten me and God's got a plan for my life. And then Monday morning rolls around and you think, whoa, wait a minute, it hasn't happened yet. God said yesterday that this was going to happen to me. And as time goes further on, you might be left scratching your head wondering if God, if you even heard it right, is God really uh, a God who's going to keep that promise for me? And it's here that I want to be really honest and say that I've felt that personally. If you have um, been at Gateway Church for any length of time, you might have heard me say this before, but actually for the last five years or so, I've been living with daily pain myself. And I've really known the frustration of it. And I can stand here this morning and be my usual cheery self, but I promise you there are times behind closed doors where I'm not quite so cheery about it. And I'm so thankful that there have been people over the last five years that have prayed for me and that have encouraged me and have walked with me through it. And I know that I am far from the only one in this room either who kind of has those daily struggles of circumstances or pain and has to live with that. And I've got to be honest and say from time to time, I can't help but think, God, why aren't you healing? People come and people pray, and then after they pray, the healing doesn't come, and you think, well, what's going on here? Why doesn't it happen? God, what's going on? And if you're holding on to a promise from God, something that you feel God said to you, a word that's been given to you that you just feel that's from God and that's going to happen, you might find yourself asking questions like that. Well, then why hasn't it happened yet? Why hasn't healing come? Why hasn't this happened? And I want to stop and bring some encouragement to you because I believe this morning God wants to remind a few people here of the promises they've been given and to encourage them to keep holding on to it. The painters aren't here this morning and one of the reasons the painters aren't here is because Matt got back from India very late last night. He spent a whole week out in India uh, on business with JP Morgan. And um, it's been great that he's been able to keep in touch to say hello whilst he's been out there. But I found that when he does pick up his phone and say hello to us, it's often at very odd times. And that's because despite the fact that he's in India, nobody has told his body that the time has changed. And so he's out in India, and it starts to get dark, and he's ready to go to sleep, and he lays down, and for some reason at 2.30 in the morning, he's still lying there like, why can I not get to sleep? And so he blesses me with a little message instead. And he's sending messages at all these weird times. And I don't quite understand the science behind it. You think, well, if it's dark, you sleep. And when it's light, you're not. But there's something in our bodies that just doesn't quite get the context. Like, I'm not in England anymore. Please, can I just go to sleep? And you're still lying there because your body clock hasn't got the message that something in the context has changed. Here's what Peter wrote about God's timing in 2 Peter 3. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And when we think about the time it took for God's promise to come through to fruition as we've journeyed through this Old Testament story, when we think about the time it's taken from exile into Babylon and return here in the book of Ezra, or how we deal with the promises that God has made to us that haven't yet come to be, we need to remember that God isn't keeping to our schedule. God isn't looking at the watch on our own wrists 
uh, when, he's, when he's, uh, he's not bound by that time. His timing isn't slow. He created the universe pretty quickly enough, but it's just not our time and it's not with our perspective. Bible scholar Tim Keller puts it this way, God's sense of timing will always confound ours. His grace rarely operates according to our schedule. The point here being that our, his schedule is better than ours. And so rather than spending our time being frustrated, I want to suggest to us that we spend our time getting our body clock aligned with God's timing instead. How does that work in reality? How does that work for me when I'm in pain and I'm at home and I'm frustrated? Actually, for me, I want to trust that if God isn't healing me yet, it's because he's wanting to do something bigger in my heart first. Actually, I want to trust that God's about a bigger work than that which I can see. And if God's not healing me, then I want to hold on to the fact that what God is doing must be bigger. And it might mean that my wait for healing goes on until I'm called home, but that doesn't make God any less faithful. If you're holding on to a promise from God and you're frustrated that it hasn't been realized yet, I want to say don't let your heart, your heart become hard. But ask God what he still wants to do in you and through you and with you through it. God's about a greater work than that which we can see. And I want to encourage you to keep praying and keep seeking God and thanking God for his continued work in your life while you wait. We actually um, have heard from the book of Ezra a couple of times before, so I don't want to dwell on it too much. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had uh, some visiting speakers with us. We had Ryan Termasusen from South Africa, and we had uh, Ben Whitaker from Adelaide. And when they came over, uh, Ryan spoke from Ezra 1, and Ben spoke from Ezra 5, and neither of them knew that the other one was going to do it, but we had our very own Ezra mini-series. It was quite interesting. And actually, Ben Whitaker spoke um, some prophetic words to us as a church and to individuals as well. And when he did, he gave this really helpful analogy of a jumper. He said, actually, being given a prophetic word is a little bit like being given a jumper. And sometimes that jumper is too big for you. And in those occasions, it's not that you need to throw the jumper out, but sometimes you need to wait to grow into that word. And sometimes you need to work to muscle up into that word. And so, actually, we're going to be talking an awful lot more our weekend away about the promises that God has given to us as a church and how we grow into them and how we be patient whilst we wait for them and all those things as well. It's why I think it's going to be such a foundational time for us, and I'd encourage you to come along. I also want to spend some time praying um, as we go back into worship in a little bit that into some of those promises. If you're holding on to a prophecy or a promise from God, God's promises come to pass. That's what we read when we read through this story of the Old Testament. There's nothing that can stop God's plans. And if you feel that there's something that God has promised you, I want to ask how you're holding on to it. And maybe we can pray for you about that today. Back to our story then uh, in Ezra. With Cyrus's blessing, the people go. And uh, Zerubbabel is the leader who goes as a part of this first wave. And they go first and they build this altar uh, so that they can give sacrifices to God. And then they rebuild the temple. Uh, And then in Nehemiah, we see the restoration of the whole city as this house for God. And so Zerubbabel leads the people back to Jerusalem. They rebuild this temple. And then there's this amazing moment of celebration for the Israelites who now have a place like they used to have to offer sacrifices and to observe festivals and to celebrate and to worship. And Ezra uh, Ezra 6 uh, talks a little bit like that. Ezra 6, 16 says this, then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They did it, and then they celebrated. 
Jump down to verse 22 of Ezra 6. For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, that's Passover, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The promises that were made in Jeremiah come to be fulfilled uh, in Ezra here, and celebration ensues. And whilst they're celebrating the fact that the temple's been restored, there are a few people who were still around from when they first went out into exile who actually are lamenting a little bit that it's still not how it used to be. It's not, it's not how it used to be yet. And at this point, Ezra himself enters the story. About 60 years after Zerubbabel leads this first wave to go and build the altar and build the temple, Ezra uh, gets commissioned by another Persian king, Artaxerxes, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And in Ezra 7, verse 10, we're told he's a man who devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And that's what he goes across to do. So he goes, he brings this second wave with him, commissioned by Artaxerxes, and he goes to, uh, to speak God's word to the people. But on arriving, Ezra finds that some of the Israelites in Jerusalem have already started to compromise. They're already not living in the way that they were supposed to be living. They were doing the sorts of things that their ancestors did. And at this point, you can think, haven't you learned your lesson? You've, you've gone into exile because uh, of the sin that you've committed. And then you've lived in exile. And now God's granted you this way back to fulfill his promises. And you're there and you built the temple. And then you sin. What's going on? Haven't you learned your lesson yet? They've started marrying uh, from the neighboring tribes again. They're not keeping themselves separate. In other words, they're not keeping themselves holy. And so Ezra's plan to come across and teach these people the law starts with teaching them to confess their sins and to remind them of the laws that they're supposed to be keeping. And that's what goes on as Ezra continues. And then we get into the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is an official in the Persian government. When we went through Daniel, we, uh, we found that Daniel was uh, working in the, the king's government, and so is Nehemiah here. And Nehemiah's role in the king's court is to be the wine bearer. He's got to taste the king's wine. He's got to make sure there's no poison in it. It's good wine. It's actually good work if you can get it. So uh, good for Nehemiah. And so he's testing the wine, and he's working in the, the king's court. And actually, he hears about the state of the city of Jerusalem, the state of the walls. And it moves him to tears at the state of the city of Jerusalem, the state that it's in. And it, and it actually doesn't just move him to tears, it moves him to action. And he goes to the king, Artaxerxes is still the king here, and in uh, Nehemiah 2, verse 5, we're now on um, page 484, if you're following along. Nehemiah 2, verse 5, he prays to the God of heaven, and then he says to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servants found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Oh, I'm so moved. Please, if I've granted favor, I want to go and rebuild this city. Please send me. And Nehemiah's request then gets granted as well. Isn't it amazing? We've got a different king now. We've had Nebuchadnezzar, we've had Cyrus, we've now got Artaxerxes, and still God is using these kings to bring about his plans and purposes. It's brilliant. And Nehemiah's moved into action, and actually he's not just moved into action. The start of verse 5 then, I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I spoke to the king. And one of, these, uh, one of the things that really marks Nehemiah out in the way that he leads is he's not just a man of action, he's a man of prayer. And so many times through the book of Nehemiah, you'll see that when times get tough, Nehemiah gets praying. And there's a really good example there for us, isn't there? When times get tough, we need to get praying. And that's what he does. And then he goes to rebuild the city. And then you move on to Nehemiah 3. 
And Nehemiah 3 and onwards charts this amazing rebuild of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, with each person taking charge of a different part of the wall as it's rebuilt piece by piece. And I'll read you an excerpt just so that you can get a little bit of an example. Starting in verse 1 of Nehemiah 3, it says, Eliashib, the high priest, and the fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachor, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hanasseh. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshillam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Barna, also made repairs. So at this point, I am annoyed at myself for not picking an easier passage to have read to you by example. Some tough names there. Helpful if you're um, thinking for children's names, perhaps. So on and on it goes. And as you read through the story of Nehemiah uh, 3 and 4 and on, um, you, the goldsmiths get involved. And the goldsmiths rebuild a different part of the wall. And then the perfume makers get involved. And the perfume makers rebuild a section. And then the valley gate gets repaired by Zanoah. And uh, then you really do have to spare a thought for Malchijah. He, sh- he draws the short straw and has to rebuild the dung gate. And so he's recorded for eternity as the man who was responsible for rebuilding the Dungate. If your job's ever bad, spare a thought for Malchijah, and it might make you feel a little bit better. And it goes on and on and on and on until we get to Nehemiah 6. And in Nehemiah 6, uh, verse 15, we get told, so the wall was complete. It gets completed. The work gets finished. And Peter Lightheart says of this work of rebuilding the city, Peter Lightheart wrote the book on which this series is, is based. Nehemiah's work of rebuilding the city is also part of rebuilding the house of God. Building the walls is part of building the house because the holy city is part of the Lord's house. So we see this great rebuild going on. As a part of our big picture story, God's always about building a house for his name. And here he's building this house through the people. God's plans and promises come to pass as the people restore the temple, restore the city, and then settle in the land. And as I was reading this account, I was actually really stirred by the way that this wall was built and what it might have to teach us here in Poole this morning. Because as Nehemiah returns, the people each take responsibility for their own bit of the wall. And you can read Nehemiah in 3 and Nehemiah 4, and you can see that each different bit of the wall gets uh, built by a different person, and they get named as the person who built that, took the responsibility to build that bit of the wall. And I want to suggest to us that actually... Even in our generation, we're still, we're still called to be builders for the kingdom of God. We're still called to help build God's kingdom in our generation with the bit of the wall that God has given us charge of. We actually have some clear, specific instructions from Jesus about this and how we go about being builders in our generation. If we uh, turn to the New Testament and Matthew 28, it's the bit of the Bible that's often called the Great Commission. And starting in verse 18, it says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. We're called, commissioned to go and be disciple makers in our generation. We've been given a bit of the wall to build here as a church in Paul. And we're charged with bringing the gospel and building God's kingdom here. That's the corporate charge we've got as Gateway Church to love and care for and own and, uh, and uh, regenerate the area that's around us to build here. And then we can partner with other churches who then get to build the next bit and the next bit and the next bit as God's kingdom gets built around the world. We're so proud of where we live and we love 
where God's placed us to serve and the people that he's called us to serve. And that's why you see initiatives like Gatehouse happening at Gateway Church, where we open our buildings on a Thursday and a Friday because we want people to come in. We want people to come in to uh, find community. We want people to come in to uh, find friends. But mostly we want people to come in so that we can tell them about Jesus. We want to see God's kingdom built here. We want to see this, this part of town, this bit of the wall that we've been given, restored in Jesus' name. And so that's why we do initiatives like that. And if you want to find more information about the sorts of things that we do and how you might be able to get involved, you can just head to the Gateway Church website and it's all on there as well. So we're a people that are moved by what Jesus has done for us and then commissioned to go and tell others the same. God sent his son to earth to take on the sins of the world and bring us into freedom of relationship with God. A freedom that allows us to partner with God in building his kingdom. And it's a freedom that we want others to share in. So our charge as Christians, Christian here this morning, you need to go and make disciples. Go and tell people the good news of Jesus, what he's done for us, what he's done for you, and what he's done for them as well. I also feel actually for each of us personally, there's a charge in how we build our bit of the wall as well. Actually, I do believe it's no accident that we've been placed in the jobs that we've been placed in. We've got friends, family members, community groups, coffee shop friends, uh, meetings at the school gate, people in our classes as we study who we're charged with sharing the gospel with. And so as we read through this account, I want to ask you what bit of the wall you've been charged with building. Where's God placed you uniquely so that you can be a representative for him and help his kingdom to be built where you are? Actually, we need to remember that as we read through those, uh, those accounts of Nehemiah and the way that the wall gets built, there's individuals that build different bits. And it might be that for some of us, we're the only, bits, we're the only builders in that bit of the wall that we've been called to. You might be in your family, the only Christian in your family, the only builder charged with bringing about God's kingdom. And we can come together as a church and we can encourage one another and build one another up, but then we need to take that charge seriously to go and make sure that we're sharing the good news of God's kingdom with others as well. That's the charge for us there. I do want to be honest here again and say that I didn't always see myself as one of these big builders. Uh, I met Emma, my wife, when I was 16 years old. Here's a lovely picture of us there. I miss that hair so much. <laughs> oh, it looks so good. Never mind. I'm also a bit annoyed. Emma looks the same. I look like a different person in that. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, take it down. I'm annoying me. Take it down. But we met when we were 16 years old, and uh, I remember the day I asked her out, and we were walking along Bournemouth Beach, and I was saying all of the things that you're supposed to say when you're wooing someone, and frankly, I already knew that my chances weren't that good. I was, there's a, a different difference in, in, in looks. And so I was doing my best and I was, you know, giving all the wooing. And then, and then I said, look, there's another thing that I just want to let you know really quickly. We've been going to church together for a little while. And I did say, like, I just feel like I'm not one of those guys who's ever supposed to kind of stand up and do any talking at church. Like, I, I, don't, I just don't really feel like I'm one of those guys that's ever going to lead a church or like, so if that's a deal breaker for you, I understand. But I just want to be honest about that up front. And as an elder speaking to you this morning, I am aware that the joke is now on me that both of those things have happened. But actually, it's really helped me to realize how wrong I was. Because as we read the Great Commission and as we get inspired by what God's done for us, actually, I don't think it's an opt-in, opt-out type of thing. I don't think it's right for me to have stood there and said, I'm not really the guy for this. Actually, God is going to call us and commission us to build his kingdom and to bring about his plans and purposes. And actually, if we're... If you're a Christian, if we're 
Christians here this morning, then it's our charge to be laborers, to put our back into the work that God has called us to do. When we read the Great Commission, it's not a suggestion, it's a charge. It's something that we have to do. We're all builders in God's kingdom, and we all need to be putting our back into this work. And not all of us will be elders, and not all of us will be employed by churches, and uh, we're all going to take different roles, but all of us are commissioned to go and make disciples, to tell people about Jesus, and to work hard for him until the day that we're called home. When um, Ben Whitaker came across from Adelaide and preached on Ezra 5 a few weeks ago, and by the way, for, for um, Ben's message and for Ryan's message, I listened to them again this week just as I was preparing for this message, and they were so helpful. So if you've got a spare 40 minutes, head back and listen to those because they're so good. But when Ben came, he was talking through Ezra 5, and he was, and he was talking about the rebuilding of this temple. And then he spoke from Psalm 127, verse 1, which said, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And Ben made this really good point about this verse that I hadn't quite clocked before. Actually, the, this verse doesn't say the laborers labor in vain, and so God needs to build the house. God needs to be the laborer. It doesn't say that. We're called to be laborers. We just shouldn't labor in vain. We're laborers. That's what we are. But actually, we need to avoid being laborers who labor in vain. And the way that we avoid being laborers who labor in vain is that we need to do it with God every step of the way. We're called to be laborers in building God's kingdom in the places that he's called us to be. And as we do so, we need to remember that we're not doing it for our own promotion or glory, but for God's, to make Jesus' name famous in our town and in our workplaces and at the school gate and beyond. And if we do that, our labor won't be in vain. A life spent building God's kingdom isn't a life of perfection. That's not what is promised for the Christian, I'm afraid. In fact, getting up and building the wall is much harder than just sitting around and waiting for everybody else to do it. But it's what we're charged to do, to work and to build and to tend what God's put under our authority and where God has placed us in this season of life. We've got work to do, and it is totally, totally worth it being on an adventure of faith for God. Is it hard sometimes? Yes, I'm afraid it very much is. But will it always be? No, because we know we've got a hope in a future while we wait and labor here for an eternal perfection to come where God's house is going to be established for an eternity. We don't labor in vain, and one day we're going to be face-to-face with the master builder, and that's going to be good news for us all. Now, at the very beginning, I said that when we read through the Bible, this isn't a storybook. It's not a book full of morals to help us live on the straight and narrow, but this stuff is true. And if it was a storybook, you might expect the book of Nehemiah to end with, and then they settled in the land, and they all lived happily ever after. That's how all the children's books end when I'm reading stories to my kids before bed. But that actually isn't what happens here. Even as the city's being rebuilt, they face opposition from the people around them. And I haven't got time to go into some of that. But actually, if you go and read through Nehemiah, it's not all easy. It's not all plain sailing. They still do come up against opposition. And even worse, the people continue to sin as well. They continue to do wrong. They continue to follow their own way and compromise and not follow the teaching of of the law and to follow worship of God. And so leaders like Nehemiah and like Ezra, their role then becomes to continue to bring correction to the people who are still doing wrong in the land. They read the law to the people and they work to instigate God's instruction for the people. But even after all the people have been through, they, their ancestors sinned to the point at which they were exiled out of the land and into Babylon and they were in exile in Babylon. And then they came back and then they did all this building and they got it all right. And then even then their lesson hasn't been learned. Even so, they're able to settle in the land here. 
But God isn't finished yet, and his plans are still being outworked. Plans that include a Messiah to come who will deal with sin once and for all. When Jesus came and died on the cross, and he rose again to defeat sin and death, so that whoever believes in in this destiny-altering act will have eternal life, won't be separated from God anymore. And like I said, I'm so pleased that we've got this Bible in our hand that we can read, and we can read ahead, and we can see the Messiah who came, who um, made that, made that uh, life-altering sacrifice on our behalf, and we know how that ends. But because we know, because we know that, because we believe in the power of Jesus' sacrifice and his atonement and his saving work on the cross, that's the message that we now have to proclaim to the world around us as well. That's the charge that I want to leave ringing in our ears. wonder if the band can come back just as we think about how we're going to respond to this. I actually want to respond in two ways uh, today as we come back into worship. The first thing I want to do is remind you that we worship a God who fulfills his promises. And as we've read through this series in the Old Testament time and time again, we have seen story of God bringing about his plans and purposes and God's promises uh, coming true. And his plans cannot be stopped. He sent Jesus to die to take our wrongdoing so that we might be seen as righteous, so that we might be commissioned to tell the world about it as well. So as we come back, I want to pray for us that actually we want to move into the fullness of the promises that God has for us as a church and those promises that God has given you as individuals. Let's pray for those. Let's pray that God would, um, would encourage us and that, and that we would see those promises come to pass. And let's pray that we would be a people on a mission that we would be a people that are ready to see his kingdom built here in Paul and BCP and beyond as God uses us for his plans and purposes and that we take this charge to make disciples and spend our lives on this great adventure with him seriously, seeing his plans outworked and promises fulfilled and having a hope in an eternal future of celebration and relationship with him forever.